Well, I think I know the answer to this from some of you that I know, but how many of you guys like roller coasters? I know some of you don't. Two hands up. Very good, Derek. Well, we're going to find out how many of you really like roller coasters because I want to know how many of you would ride this particular roller coaster. This one is called the Jersey Devil. It's at uh, Six Flags, and it, um, it's the world's tallest, fastest, and steepest single-rail roller coaster. So a lot of you guys said you would ride that, and I- I'm with you on that. I can still remember uh, one summer when our kids were still at home, we took a vacation, and we went to San Diego. And one day, Pam and I decided to go meet a couple of her friends up in um, Six Flags, and we were going to go on all these rides. And uh, I don't remember her friends' names, but I do remember the question they asked when we got there. They, they turned to Pam and they said, is your dad going to be okay going on all these roller coasters? And uh, I love roller coasters. I love them then. I love them now. I would go on the Jersey Devil. But I don't particularly like when my life is a roller coaster, right? We would just as soon live on those, those high spots. And I have to come down into the valley sometimes. But really, that's just not very realistic, is it? Our lives are never like that. Our lives are a a roller coaster. And this morning, we're going to look at a a psalm that really is a picture of David's life and the roller coaster that he went on. And it's it's a psalm that tells about some of the highest highs, but about some of the lowest lows and how God turned those around. And that's what we've been talking about this This Christmas season, we're talking about how when Jesus came to this earth and He was born in a manger, that He became Emmanuel, God with us, how He made it possible to turn things around in our lives. And we've already talked about how we can make these great gift exchanges with Jesus. We talked about how we could give Him our despair and He'll give us His hope. We talked about how we can give Jesus our hurt and He'll give us His love. And this morning we're going to talk about how we can give Jesus our grief and He'll give us His joy. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I think about grief, I usually think about it in connection with someone who's passed away, a loved one who's passed away. But grief is really much broader than that. And I looked at a lot of definitions of grief this week, and and here's the one that I came across that I think is probably most helpful for our purposes this morning. To find grief like this, that it's the conflicting feelings caused by the end or change in a familiar pattern of behavior. And if you think about that, that that makes the idea of grief pretty broad, right? I mean, it it could happen just because we move from one city to another. That could cause grief. It changes a familiar pattern. It could even be just moving from one house to another house in the same city. It might be something like changing a job. It might even be something like just having some different responsibilities in my current job or maybe even getting a promotion, which is a good thing. And I know for a lot of people, even retirement can be this this time of grief if we really think about it in terms of this definition. I can can relate to that as I come to a point in my life where we're going to begin to transition from the time when I've been the lead pastor here. I know that down the road that's going to make be some changes in my life. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for our church. It's a a logical place, next step for my life. 
but it is potentially going to cause some grief. And so when we have the grief, there's nothing wrong with grief. It's a normal part of life. The problem arises with with how we deal with that grief. And that's why this morning we're going to look at this this psalm of David that helps us to understand how we can give our grief to Jesus and let Him give us His joy in return. We're going to be looking this morning at uh, Psalm 30, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to go ahead and, and turn there. Before I read the entire psalm, I want us to have a little context and, and background before we do that. And I want you to look at the superscription. The superscription is like... We, the title. That's a fancy name for the title. And there's a couple of things that we note here. We know, first of all, we notice that David is the author, and that's, that's not really surprising. David writes a lot of the Psalms, and, and he writes them at all different points in his life, all different kinds of circumstances. But then the second part of it says it's a song at the dedication of the temple. And I don't know about you, But when I first read that this week, I think, something's not quite right here. I mean, after all, David didn't build the temple, right? He wanted to, but God says, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to let your son Solomon do it. So, So how could David possibly have written this song to be used at the dedication of the temple? There's a few possible explanations, probably more than than I'll even share with you, but, but let me just share with you three of, I think, ones that are probably pretty reasonable first of all that word temple that's 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 translated temple there it literally just means a house or a place of dwelling it can even figuratively refer to a household and so some people think that David actually wrote this when he built his own house the palace and I suppose that's possible but it just doesn't seem all that likely to me that that was the the time that he did it but it's possible Some people believe that it's possible that David looked forward to the time when Solomon would build the temple. I mean, David was collecting a lot of the the materials that would be used. He knew his son Solomon was going to do it, so he wrote this psalm, and he passed it down to his son Solomon to be read when the temple was built. problem with that is that I don't find any evidence in the Scripture anywhere that Solomon ever read one of David's psalms at at the dedication of the temple. To me, the most likely scenario is found in the events that are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And there, if you remember, David takes the Ark of the Covenant, which had been outside of Jerusalem, he brings it into Jerusalem, and he places it into the tent that he had built just for that purpose, so that the Ark of the Covenant would have a dwelling place. And the reason I think there's a connection to that is because you'll notice here in verse 11, it talks about dancing. And if you remember that account back in 2 Samuel, what what happened was that David's wife, Michael, she rebukes David because he's dancing because they brought the the Ark of the Covenant into undercover there. And so I think that's probably it. But but regardless of that, regardless of what the setting is, I think this, this psalm has much to teach us about how we can give our grief to Jesus. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to go ahead and read this psalm out loud this morning I will extol you O Lord for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me O Lord my God I cried to you for help and you have healed me O Lord you have brought up my soul from shale you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit sing praises to the Lord O you his saints and give thanks to his holy name 
For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What a, what a great psalm here. And in here we see this, these highs and these lows in David's life. And we see how God comes along and He transforms it, how He takes those things and He takes David from a place where he's sick to a place of wellness, a place where he's about to die to a place of life and wholeness, a place where he's grieving to a place where he can experience God's joy. And the main idea that, that we want to develop out of this psalm this morning is this. That Jesus gives me joy in exchange for my grief when I view my circumstances in light of His character. When I begin to look around and I see my circumstances in light of who God is, then God can take my grief and He can turn it into joy. He did it in David's life and He can do it for you and He can do it for me as well. Now this psalm has a really interesting structure to it. It's a structure we actually find in a lot of the psalms. It's it's what's technically, technically known as a chiasm. And here's what that means. Simply that, that the first part of the psalm is kind of mirrored in the second part of the psalm. So that, that what happens is that, that you see that, that kind of mirroring going on. And, and I thought about trying to show you a whole, this whole psalm and exactly how that works, but I couldn't really get it down to a size I could fit on a slide or put in your bulletin. So, so I'll give you a couple of examples so you can see how this works. And then maybe this week, if you want to, you can kind of go back through the psalm and, and kind of complete the process. But let's look first at verse 1, the first verse, and verse 12, the last verse. Here's what, here's what verse 1 says. I will extol you, O Lord. That's how, remember that, because that's how the psalm begins. For you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me. So he says, I will extol you. He says, and my foes, they've been silenced. Let's go to verse 12 at the end now. And here's what he says, that my glory may sing over your praise and not be silent. So his foes, remember we saw in verse 1, they've been silenced. David says, I'm not going to be silenced. He says, I will give thanks to you forever. He begins out by saying, I will extol you, O Lord. At the end, he says, I will give thanks to you forever. As we move into the kind of the next layer then, we'll look at verse 3. And uh, we'll look at verse 9. Verse 3 says this, O Lord, you have brought my soul up from shale. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Now look at the parallels in verse 9. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? So we see in, in both of these verses, there's a reference here to death and to the pit and to shale. 
Now, I need to explain to you what shale is a little bit. We see that sometimes in the, in, in the Scriptures, and it's not totally understandable. To the Jews, they had a little bit different understanding of life after death than we get by the time we get to the New Testament. And so for the Jews, shale was kind of the holding place where the souls of all the departed living would go, both the wicked and the righteous. And so we don't see the separation that we see in the New Testament between heaven and hell. But that was the place where they go. So what David is doing here, he's talking about times when, when he almost died. Now we know David never actually died and was brought back to death, but, but he's speaking kind of figuratively here. And what he's saying is there was a time when there have been times in my life when I was near death, and God turned that around. And verses 8 through 10 are kind of a, a flashback here where, where he, David is looking back to this time when he had prayed this prayer to God. And then and in the first part of the, the psalm, he, he, sell, he tells us how God had answered that prayer. So we kind of move on next to the next layer that we're going to see here. And uh, look at verse 5 and verse 11. Here's what it says in verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And then verse 11, I think you'll see the parallels here. For you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And I'd say these verses are really at the heart of what we're going to talk about this morning. In both these cases, we see that because of his character, because of who God is, because of his nature, that he takes things that are broken and difficult and hard and he turns them into joy and gladness. Now what the structure does in a psalm like this where you have this chiasm is it's intended to focus all the attention on the middle part of the psalm, which in this case would be verses 6 and 7. And in verses 6 and 7, I think we really see the heart here of what David has to do before God will take his grief from him and turn it into joy. And it really all revolves around him beginning to understand who God is is he starts out and we're going to talk more about this in a moment but he starts out with a pretty arrogant attitude he says man look at all i got look what all i've done i'm a pretty good guy but eventually he begins to understand that everything he has comes from god he begins to understand god's character and who god is and what god's nature is and that's what allows god to take his grief from him and turn it into joy and that's what what happens in our life as well so so what we want to do this morning is see what we can learn from David and see how we can let Jesus take our grief and give us his joy in return you'll notice yeah we can go ahead and skip there I'm going to come back to that one in a little bit grace so there's some things that we can do here's the first one we need to remember how God has worked in the past. We need to remember how God has worked in the past. That's what David does, doesn't he, at the beginning of the psalm. He goes back, he says, God, I remember. I remember how you saved me when I was about to die. I remember how you, you, you healed me when I was sick. And it was that remembrance of God's character and how God that had worked in the past that allowed him to be able to go on into the future and to live in the present. And the same thing is true for us. We need to remember how God has worked in our life in the past. We need to remember how He's, how he's healed us when we were ill, how He's protected us from harm, how He's saved us from eternal punishment. 
Now, God is not obligated to work in the same way that He has in the past, exactly. I mean, let's suppose that you lose your job, you get laid off, and the next day you get a job. That's a good thing, right? Well, that doesn't mean the next time you lose your job that you're going to get a job the next day. But what it does mean is that we can learn about the character of God and and who He is and what He does for us in our lives if we'll remember the way that He has worked in our lives in the past. The second thing that we need to do if we want to do that is that we need to remember that my troubles are only temporary. I think this is one of the key things for us to, to understand here. We need to remember that our troubles are only temporary and we see this really clearly in verse 5, it says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The word tarry there is it's a word that means just to like lodge overnight. And that's really important here because what, what David is telling us is that, that our troubles, our weeping, it might last overnight, but it's not going to come and take up permanent residence in our life. And no matter how long our troubles might last here on this earth, they're really but a little blip in terms of eternity. No matter how long they last. Even if they last our entire lifetime on, here on earth, they're just a little blip. I'm reminded here of what Paul wrote to the churches in Rome. He wrote this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's an important thing to remember. Whatever troubles you're going through, whatever grief you're going through, it will pass. I love what, uh, I, I can't remember exactly where I found this this week, but I wrote it down when I found it, and then I couldn't find where I found it. But, but I thought it was really good. This one pastor said this, if we keep our mind on the morning, we can make it through the night. Don't you like that? If we keep our mind on the morning, we can make it through the night. Our troubles are only temporary. Next thing we need to do is we need to be humble. We need to be humble. And this is really at the, the heart, like I say, this psalm in verses 6 and 7. You see, you see what David's attitude was. And I can't help but think that, that his attitude really led to his sin with Bathsheba. You know, David was, he says, man, I looked around, I saw the prosperity, I saw all this stuff that, you, that, that happened in my life. I was the king of the land, there was peace in the land, I had money and riches. He's, and, and I think what happened, he, he began to get a big head and he began to think after a while that he was bulletproof, that nothing could touch him. And even when he sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and committing murder with her husband, For a while, David thought he could get away with it, and he did for a while, right? But what began to happen? After a while, it began to eat away at him. That's what verse 7 is all about. He says, I understood that God was turning His face away with me. I was dismayed because it was impacting my relationship with God. And it wasn't until he humbled himself and that he confessed that sin before God that God began to restore that relationship. And I'm, you know, we, we look at that at David's life and we think, man, how could he do that? But you know, we're we're we can do exactly the same thing in our lives, can't we? Especially when things are going really well, we can look around and we can say, man, look at all I have, look at all I've done, look at all this wealth that I've accumulated, look at this great job I have, look at this beautiful house that we built. 
We need to humble ourselves and to recognize that everything we have, every single thing that we have in our life, it's a gift from God. And that really leads us to the next thing that we need to do. We need to be grateful. We need to be grateful. I love how David ends this psalm. When he gets to the, to the end of everything, when he thinks through this whole time and how God had brought him through, here's what he says at the end of the psalm. He says, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Forever. He's grateful for the things finally that God had done for him. And we need to be grateful as well. See, we get ourselves... In, a, in trouble because we look around at what other people have and we begin to think all the things that I don't have that somebody else has and we forget to thank God for the things that he's given to us. And as I've talked about before, if you live in this country, even if you're one of the most very poor people in this country, you have been blessed richly by God. You have more than most of the people in this world will ever have in a lifetime. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're grateful people. Not only that, not only does he say, I'll give thanks to God, but he, earlier on in the psalm he says, all you saints, come with me and let's all give thanks to God together. Thanksgiving is infectious, it's contagious. And he points out here the importance of us continuing to gather together with other people and give thanks to God together. Because it helps to lift us out of that grief and into a, into a place of joy. Finally, we need to be patient and wait for God to work. We need to be patient and wait for God to work. Man, we're, we're in such a hurry <laughs> to fix things. I mean, don't we? Most of us do that, right? We get in trouble. What do we do? It's like, man, I'm going to open up my bag of tricks and see how I can fix this situation. Those of us who are men, we're even more guilty of that probably most of the time. But we see here in this, in this psalm that just like we saw last week, God is the one who is doing all the working here. David doesn't say, hey God, I turned my mourning into dancing. He says, God, you did that. Apparently David was not a Baptist because he was dancing. He looks around and he doesn't say, God... God, I have gladness in my heart. I've been closed with gladness now. He said, I didn't do that for myself. He says, God, you've done that. He waits and he relies upon God. And that's a hard thing for us to do sometimes. Because God doesn't always do that immediately. God's capable of it. But sometimes for our own good, He doesn't come working immediately in our lives. He lets us work through the situation. He, he has things He wants to teach us. But we need to be willing to just wait patiently there and allow God to be the one that does it. Because let's face it, none of us can manufacture joy on our own, right? I, can't, I certainly don't know how to do that. But God can. Because that's His nature. God is a God of joy. And He wants to bring joy into our lives. But we have to allow Him to do that. We can't do it ourselves. So we've seen this morning that Jesus gives me joy in, ex or in exchange for my grief when I view my circumstances in light of His character. When I begin to understand that as a God who hates sin, He does, He hates sin. 
And he gets angry at sin, as we see here. But as it says, his anger is only for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Not just here on this earth, but for eternity. We see here that, 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 that God is sometimes a God who chastises us, who disciplines us. But He does it for our own good. You see, God delights in taking broken people and taking people who are grieving and building joy into their life. That's the kind of God that we serve. And for those of us who are God's children, we can claim that promise. God promises to do that for us. But here's the problem. The biggest lie, I think, in this world today that I've seen is the lie that all people are God's children. You've heard that before, right? We're all God's children. That's, people use that a lot as an excuse to sin. But we're not all God's children. The Bible is really clear. We're not all God's children. I wish it were the case, but it's just not true. Only those who have done certain things in their life can become God's children. Now, God's made that possible for everyone. But in the first chapter of, of John's Gospel, in the, in the opening words, he makes it really clear what it takes to become one of God's children. He writes this, But to all who did receive Him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So that very first Christmas, Jesus came to this earth, and He humbled Himself. And he was born as a little baby to an unknown couple, unwed couple. In the humblest of circumstances, they had to, to lay him in a manger, which was a feeding trough for animals. But he didn't remain there. He didn't remain a baby. He grew up. And he lived a sinless life. And one day... He willingly gave up that life on the cross to make it possible for every single person to become a child of God. Remember earlier I told you that, that there was this idea that David wasn't really resurrected. Well, back in verse 3, there is, I think, a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. It says there that you restored my life. That word restored literally means to raise someone from the dead. Same word that was used when Elisha raised the widow's son who had, had died. And when Jesus died on the cross for us, like David, he essentially cried out to God to save him from the pit. And God did that. And on Easter morning, Jesus rose from the grave and he did that to prove his power over death, and His power over sin. And for those who will put their faith in Jesus and become children of God, Jesus will take your grief and He'll turn it into joy and He'll do that very willingly and graciously. So if you've never done that, we invite you, we urge you to take that first step this morning. But I know that, that most of you here have already done that. You are children of God. And if that's the case, if you want Jesus to take your grief and turn it into joy, then you need to be able to apply 
the principles that we've talked about this morning in your life. And let Jesus do that. He would love nothing more than to do that for you. Our life on this earth really is a roller coaster, isn't it? We have those highs, and, and sometimes that means that in our life we're going to have grief. No doubt about it. But Jesus made it possible at Christmas time to take that grief from us and give us joy in exchange. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being that kind of God, a God who delights, who delights in giving joy to us, Father. Ah, thank you that you do turn our mourning to dancing, that you clothe us with gladness. And we thank you that that's all been made possible through Jesus. So, Father, first of all, this morning, I want to pray for anyone who has never put their faith in Jesus, who have never taken that, that first step in their walk with Him so that you can do that in their lives. I pray that today they would make that decision, that they wouldn't wait any longer, that the Holy Spirit would just be speaking them, to them so clearly that they would understand that they need to do that. And Father, for the rest of us who have already done that, help us day by day to walk with you in a way where we can give up our grief to you and allow you to give us joy in return. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.